Well, hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Julie Peterson, and it is so good to be here with you. Thanks so much for joining me on this Memorial Day weekend, or whenever it is that you may be here. Hopefully you've been well as the days lengthen and become warmer. It's feeling like summer, and maybe even for some, time to travel. I was out of town earlier in the month and enjoyed a really refreshing and restorative vacation. I got to hang out with my mom for a full week, and it was the best ever. During my time away, I got to celebrate my mom's 80th birthday, which happened to fall on Mother's Day. We celebrated at her home in El Centro, which is the house that I grew up in. Some of you may recall from the story I shared during last summer's teaching series that my hometown, El Centro, is a desert town. It's super arid and is extremely hot in the summer and the spring, and the fall, and sometimes the winter. And it's also super isolated. There are these incredible mountains that I passed through a few weeks ago and countless times as a child to travel between El Centro and San Diego, which are about two hours apart. As far as the eye can see, there's nothing visible but dust and rocks. I think it's utterly amazing, like truly a sight to behold. El Centro is in the Imperial Valley, and as dry and arid as it is in this remote desert town, thanks to water that's been diverted from the Colorado River, this region is also incredibly fertile. There are over 500,000 harvested acres in the valley. Lettuce, cauliflower, and broccoli are just a few vegetables that are grown there, and field crops like sugar beets and wheat are abundant. In fact, it's the largest alfalfa-growing region in the world. Now, it could be because I haven't been to El Centro for over three years, but the desert never looked as beautiful to me as it did when I saw it a few weeks ago. I saw it with new eyes. Plants popping up in unexpected places, thriving in parched, cracked soil beside sidewalks and prickly pear and saguaro cacti adorning the neighbor's yards, and acres and acres of rows and rows of neatly planted produce bending to a vanishing point. It was stunning and striking. Water brings life in the driest of places. It brings life in the desert. Water brings life in the wilderness. Today, we're concluding our teaching series, Water of Life. Over the last four weeks, we've been looking at the recurring theme of water in the scriptures and reflecting on stories that revolve around rivers and wells and springs. And through this, we've explored God's nature and the nature of His kingdom as He brings life and restoration and refreshment to humanity by bringing chaos into order. We opened our series with a look at God's creative and restorative heart as he transforms waters of chaos into waters of life in the very beginning, and as he graciously sends water out into the wilderness to bring restoration and renewal to his fallen creation in the wilderness. And then we looked at God's heart for justice as he meets and truly sees an unseen maidservant at a spring in the desert in the wilderness. We've also seen God's abundant nature in a time of famine as his presence is manifest through the flourishing of overflowing wells in the midst of scarcity and conflict in a hostile land. And 
Last week, we reflected on God's life-giving presence, represented in a vision as a temple from which waters of life flowed. And we looked at how Jesus, the glory of God who came to dwell or temple among us, how life-giving water flows from Jesus and in turn through God's people who are his temple as a resurrection of Jesus Christ is made manifest through resurrection lives. And today, we go to an unlikely location at an unlikely time to witness an encounter which reveals God's inclusive heart. We're looking at the water of life for everyone. To do so, we head to a place that Jesus had to go to. Let's check it out and look at John chapter 4, starting in verse 1, together. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Well, we're in the fourth chapter of John, and at this point in the Gospel's narrative, the author, whose name is John, has already introduced us to another John, John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist had been preaching repentance and had been preparing the way for the Messiah, the coming Jesus Christ. And because of all this, he's gotten attention of the religious leaders who are threatened by his message. We saw this back in chapter 1. And in chapter 3, we see they're still at it. And now, Jesus is on the Pharisees' radar as flocks of people are making their way to him at the spot near the Judean capital and getting baptized. Now, Jesus knows the timing isn't right for a confrontation with the religious leaders, and so he leaves Judea and heads north, back to his hometown of Galilee. Now, Jesus had options to make his way back. There were three routes. West along the coastal plain close to the Mediterranean Sea, east along the Jordan River Valley, or along a central path through Samaria on a ridge that wound north. Although the path through Samaria was the most direct, taking about three days on foot, the eastern path was the most popular route for Jewish travelers, even though it took almost twice as long, about five days. Now, this wasn't the route of choice because there was an accident ahead and Google Maps or Waze told them that it was the fastest route, and it wasn't because they were trying to rack up steps on their health app. Oh, by the way, have you ever wondered what Jesus' average steps were per week? Anyway, the reason Jewish sojourners took this route was to avoid passing through Samaria. While this path was really circuitous, it was also really well-worn, and that's because of the social and religious tensions of the day. The lengths the Jews and Samaritans went through to avoid each other were long, and the roots of animosity ran deep. You see, after Israel was exiled over seven centuries prior, foreigners settled in Samaria. These foreigners intermarried with the Israelites who were still in and around the region, and as a result, Samaritans were part Jew and part Gentile, ethnically as well as from a religious standpoint. While they learned Moses' teachings, they also held on to idols from their own homelands. 
the Jews despised the Samaritans because of all of these things. And so they took the long road to avoid them. So Jesus had options. He could have walked around Samaria, just like everyone else. Yet he chose to walk through Samaria because he was compelled to. You see, Jesus had to go to Samaria. It was embedded into the path that was his literal and metaphorical missional journey. As we continue on in our narrative, we find Jesus at the spot in Samaria in the land of Jacob, this area that Jacob purchased from a leader in the nearby city of Shechem. Jesus is two days into the trek and is tired from the journey and decides to stop at a well along a main road. It's the sixth hour, or around noon, the hottest time of the day, and not exactly the time you'd think someone would want to go to a well and go through the work of drawing water from it. Just think back to Tuesday and Wednesday of this week when it was like broiling in the Bay Area. Noon was the time to be sitting in the shade. Yet, someone's here at the well, and as odd as it must have been to see someone here at this hour, what happens next would have been even more confounding. A Jew, a Jew asks this person, a Samaritan, for a drink. We see, starting in verse 9, The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? This interaction crosses so many boundaries, and as part of this is confounding on so many levels, given the norms of the day. First, it's bewildering that a Jew is asking a Samaritan for a drink. You wouldn't expect to see this intentional, cordial encounter between these antagonistic people groups. Also, in this culture, men don't typically initiate conversations with women that they don't know. In fact, in verse 27, we see that his disciples were surprised to find him talking with a woman. And it is surprising and odd that Jesus asks this woman for a drink because he has no bucket. So this means that a Jewish person would be drinking from a Samaritan woman's bucket. A Samaritan woman was considered to be perpetually unclean. So why was this Jew, this rabbi, asking to drink water from this unclean woman's bucket and, as such, defile himself? Then, of course, there's the Jesus offering her water thing. How can Jesus be offering the woman water given that he has nothing to draw it with? And what's more, what's up with the living water thing? What is that? Jesus goes on to explain in verse 13. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, 
The water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We'll never thirst again. How? What could this mean? If Jesus didn't already have her attention, he certainly does now. What does this passage tell us about this water that Jesus offers? There are some important nuances to be aware of, and as we've seen elsewhere in this teaching series, the English language can sort of fail us. As we entered into this series, we saw that the word that's translated as water actually changes as we look at the scriptures in Hebrew from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, as God's life-giving and transformative spirit hovers over dark, chaotic water and transforms it into life-giving water. And also during the series, we reflected on the way that the word for slave or maid or maidservant is kept the same throughout Genesis 16 in our English translations. However, in Hebrew, this word changes and these different words, in fact, convey increased levels of dehumanization as the passage continues on. So it is, as we get into today's passage... In our English translation and in Greek, we see the Samaritan woman use the ordinary word well, which gets at a typical man-made well, which Jacob's well indeed was. But when looking at this passage in Greek, Jesus uses a different word to describe the gift he gives. However, we see in the King James Version the use of the same English word that the woman used, well. While the NIV translation more accurately translates this word that Jesus uses as a spring of water, in the King James Version, Jesus' description is translated as a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The word Jesus uses, translated as pege in Greek, gets at a continual supply of water, a spring or a fountain. So it is with the gift Jesus gives. It's perpetual. It continually brings life, like a spring. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, this spring, this continual source of water, indwells and rises or wells up within God's people. And it's accessible, always. The spring of water that Jesus offers satisfies so deeply that whoever drinks it will never thirst This is so compelling to the woman. As we go back to our passage, we see that the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, You have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Okay, so now she's really listening. Jesus has caught her in this white lie of sorts. She doesn't have a husband, but she has had five, and now she's with someone who's not her husband. Jesus knows these details of her life. These intimate details for which this unseen and disregarded woman has suffered shame, which is likely the reason she's here at the well at the suboptimal time. It's a way to avoid or minimize judgy looks and words from others. 
But Jesus doesn't judge her, even though he knows her story. He knows whatever it was that eluded her or drove her to or got her in a situation to have had five husbands and now to be with yet another man. This half-Jew and half-Gentile person was also half-caste as her past lowered her status not only among the Jews, but also among her own people. And yet, Jesus went to her to encounter her and to see her and offer her a deep and meaningful gift that would satisfy her truest, deepest needs and quench her thirst forever. Jesus essentially says, I see you in your thirst, your ongoing and fruitless pursuit of satisfaction. Take this gift and thirst no more. This gift that Jesus refers to is translated from the word Dorian, which gets at something that's freely given. This word emphasizes the freeness of the gift. There's nothing that this woman could ever do to earn it. And there's nothing that this woman could have ever done to disqualify her from receiving it. This gift, this unmerited gift, is enough. It's enough to satisfy all of her deepest needs now, and it's enough to satisfy all of her deepest needs forever. It quenches forever. The woman now sees that Jesus is a prophet, a person whom she later says told her about all the things she ever did by seeing her past and so she takes the opportunity to ask Jesus to settle a centuries-old dispute about the right place to worship God. Was it the holy city of Jerusalem, as the Jews believed? Or Mount Gerizim, the sacred mountain visible from this well, as the Samaritans believed? In response, Jesus revealed the truth about a coming future. We see in verse 19, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet... A time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. So, where does God desire that His people worship? Jesus reveals here that the place of worship is irrelevant. The where is irrelevant in the coming future. A future which was through Jesus breaking into the present. What is happening through Jesus is the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy from Malachi 1.11. We read, My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Malachi prophesies that in every place, 
offering and worship will be lifted to the Lord because his name will be great among all nations from where the sun rises to where the sun sets. Jesus says, it's not about the where of worship at this mountain or that, in this city or another. And what's more, it's not about the who of worship, whether worshipers are Jew or whether they're Gentile. Jesus' response reveals that true worshipers are those who will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. This is such an important message that he repeats it twice in the space of two short verses. True worshipers do both. Worshiping in spirit without truth is misguided. It's pointed at the wrong thing or person and therefore is idolatry. And worshiping in truth without the spirit is legalistic and is empty and hollow. What follows next in today's passage is so beautiful. We see that. Starting in verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. What a mic drop. Jesus reveals himself to the woman. He reveals himself as the long-awaited Messiah. Now, she sees that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has indeed come. And he's here before her, in her very midst. And she receives the priceless, unmerited, and unconditional gift that is living water. The continual spring that is the water of life here in the desert, in the literal, physical, as well as spiritual wilderness that is Samaria, and that is her life. And what does she do next? She does what true worshipers do. She worships in spirit and in truth. She worships filled with the truth that's been revealed to her and has filled her with the Spirit, and has given her new life. This worship looks like action and word. She leaves her water jar, and she worships by heading back to her town and telling the others this truth that's been revealed to her. She says, starting in verse 29, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. I love the way she asks, could this be the Messiah? It's been suggested that she asks this question to evoke curiosity, perhaps because she knows that the testimony of women weren't considered reliable. Maybe she thought that if folks were curious, they'd check things out for themselves. Regardless, God worked through what she did and what she said, which resulted in folks making their way to Jesus. Reminiscent of the way that Jesus revealed himself to the woman from Galilee, who then shared the truth about the resurrected Messiah with others, Jesus revealed himself to the woman from Samaria, who then shared truths about him with those around her. God worked powerfully through these women. Verse 39 tells us that through the woman at the well, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. 
Jesus met, saw, and revealed himself to a single foreign woman of low social status who was looked down upon by her people. In much the same way that God met, saw, and revealed himself to a dehumanized maidservant who was referred to as the foreign thing by her own people. God sees these image bearers and brings them hope and justice and new life. God's water of life is for everyone. Jesus offered a continual spring of living water to permanently quench the thirst of a spiritually thirsty woman beside a well in the wilderness in the heat of the day. Similarly, God sprung up water through an abundance of wells to bless an obedient follower who faithfully stays where he's called to be during a famine in a physically and spiritually dry, hostile place. God's water of life is abundant. Jesus had to go to Samaria because it was his mission, and a chosen woman had to go to a town in Samaria to spread the truth of the Messiah, who is the Christ, so that they could say, we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. You see, as God's water of life rose up within her, it flowed out of her. And it became like an uncrossable stream transforming her community. In much the same way that the river flowed out of the temple in Ezekiel's prophetic vision, the way that it deepened and widened and ultimately transformed a dead body of water into a sea teeming with life. The water of life flows in and through God's people. As we reflect on the inclusive, abundant, and life-giving heart of the God of creation who has been transforming chaos into order from the beginning, what is the Holy Spirit stirring in you? What could it look like to dig new wells or to reopen ones that haven't been drawn upon in a long time in order to tap into the unconditional love and grace of Jesus anew, to remove rocks and dirt and access something that's already there beneath the surface, beneath the surface of the busyness and stress and complications of day-to-day life. Perhaps that could look like attending our Oceanfront Summer Prayer Retreat in Santa Cruz on June 25th to meet with a God who sees you. You can get more details and sign up for that on our website, which is highway.org. How could the life-giving water that flowed from Jesus and flowed through the Samaritan woman continue to flow through you? How can you be a part of extending the water of life into wilderness and desolation to meet those who are thirsty, those who are desperate for repair? This Wednesday from 7 to 9.30 a.m. is Highway's next Hope's Corner Day. It's a monthly time that we set aside to feed and most importantly to see the unseen, the hungry, and the marginalized in our midst. If you'd like to volunteer with us, you can sign up for this on our website. Highway family, where is your Samaria? 
as you sit with and are filled by God and his transforming water in this time of deep brokenness and pain. Where is it that you can't not go? In a time of violence, tragedy, and loss, who is God calling you to sit or stand or pray beside As we soldier on through the pandemic, there are so many needs. People are missing out on milestones because they are sick and isolating. What would it look like to truly see them? Folks are struggling with the rising costs of living. People are looking for gainful employment. Systems and structures that further oppress the already oppressed need dismantling. Our website has a list of ministry partners that are doing great work in so many of these spaces, and they could use your help. Where is your Samaria, and what is the path that is your mission? Where is it that you can't not go? How can you live a life of worship in the Spirit and in truth as God's temple overflowing, filled with and led by His indwelling presence today. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are the source of life. Thank you for the way your creative and abundant and life-giving presence renews us and brings renewal around us. Father, thank you for seeing us, your daughters and sons, and for meeting us in our wilderness moments and our wilderness seasons in the most nourishing of ways. May we be transformed by your love and your care. Resurrected Jesus, thank you for the hope that we have in you. May your people be your hope as the free eternal gift of the spring of water of life wells up within us and pours out around us. May we represent you well in our time and place as we seek to follow you and answer our call to go on. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.